David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. a few things already in the last two weeks of this series on the 17th century. Uh, the first time I've ever really uh, dived into teaching the 17th century uh, in a way that can uh, make sense of it. And I've got to tell you that we've covered already quite a few different personalities and events and we're getting a feel for the 17th century, but it's not going to come as a massive shock to you to find out that apparently in the 17th century, there were some women. Now, I want to... Uh, look, that's a familiar discussion, and we have it every time we talk about any history. Any history that we talk about. doesn't matter whether we're talking about Jewish history or Australian history. It's a kind of a thing where, until the recent decades uh, in our lifetimes, that really it's been men who've written the history and men who have occupied the primary positions as movers and shakers in social dynamics and in historical change. And that's by virtue of the fact that for so long, women, uh, women's talents and their abilities were not always evident and not always pushed to the fore. And yes, women were locked out of a lot of patriarchal structures. And those patriarchal structures have started to break down in the last couple of hundred years generally, in the last couple of centuries. And the 20th century saw some phenomenal changes in the status and role and contributions of women. And only now is we really, I mean, we take it for granted now that women are completely equal in every professional and social area as men. But you would acknowledge that that's kind of a recent acknowledgement. And so when we look back at a period like the 17th century or even other periods in, in, in the pre-modern or early modern era, we're going to find ourselves wondering where were all the women? And we were, we've looked at a lot of men. Now, <laughs> where were all the women? Well, they were definitely there. I'm going to talk tonight about not a massive amount of things. I'm really going to talk about six or seven women. But these six or seven women are the women, are the women that you would want to know about if you dive deep into the 17th century, or even if you're just going for a shallow skinny dip in the 17th century. These are the women that you will find are present and that give rise to historical interest. But it's not like the 16th century. Who was there when I, as part of the 16th century, and I gave a talk on women of the 16th century, a century which I call the century of the Jewish woman. We had a lot of women in the 16th century, and they were kind of different because a lot of those women were game changers. They really, really altered the course of history. Not just Jewish history, but in some cases, world history. You know, when we speak about someone like Donna Grazia, we're talking about someone who dominated the whole of the Jewish world for a good part of that century. But the women of the 17th century are not games that we look at, 
are not game changers. It doesn't make them any less interesting, but they're not altering the course of history. They are reacting to it. But each of these women is very, very different. And it's only now, having done this for a couple of weeks that we've dived into the 17th century, that we even know enough to understand the context of each of these women and what they were doing. So if you haven't been to the first two, some of what we talk about I'm going to have to be a little shorthand on because we have covered it in detail. And I go, you remember when we talked about this, we're placing this woman here. All right? So that's just by way of a prelude and just to settle ourselves. It doesn't mean that these women are not fascinating and they give us a tremendous insight into the different facets of what's going on in the Jewish world in the 17th century. And here's our map. All right? There's the Spain, the Portugal, Egypt, the land of Israel, Turkey, and this is going to be starting to take some shape of Germany, lots of different principalities, but by now we've got the Kingdom of Prussia up and running. We've still got the big kind of, you know, Polish-Lithuanian uh, kingdom slash Commonwealth, and we've got Russia over here, and then here uh, we've got uh, the Americas, the New World, and we've got New Spain, which is we now call Mexico and so on. And that's our world of the 17th century. See, a couple of these women are really famous. You would have heard of them. And a couple of these women are not as famous as they should be, but they're really, really interesting, and they are coming to the fore. Because we now live in an age where studies of women in history and the role of history is opening up, you're going to hear more about these women. So it's worthwhile understanding who they are. And you can be the clever clogs that said, oh, yes, no, I have heard of that person. How many of you can name, don't call, do not call out, please. If you call out, you, you, you rob other people of the chance to think. Put up your hand if you can name at least one woman from the 17th century. Who can that? I know that you can name at least one woman because there's one woman we spoke about last week. So if you were sitting here last week, there's at least one woman you know of. Remember I spoke about Sarah, the wife of Shabtai Tzvi. I'm going to speak a little bit more about her tonight. But I'm not starting with her. I'm starting with one of a couple that I think are super interesting. And we're starting in, of our whole picture of the 17th century, we're starting in Italy. And we're going to start in Venice. Now, despite everything we've said, the true story is of the 16th and 17th centuries, if you're Jewish, you know, like so many other centuries, there are good places and not such good places. But if you're Jewish and you have a little bit of guilt, you have a little bit of money, you're successful and a shtickle wealthy, then you really probably want to be in Italy. It's kind of where it's happening. It's not happening for you if you're not wealthy or you're not established. But if you are, you've just been going through the whole of the effervescence of the Renaissance. Culturally, socially, intellectually, things are good. And the Jewish communities in Italy, for the most part, whilst existing under some kinds of restrictions, are not going through all the horribleness that Jewish communities in Northern and Eastern Europe are going through. There is a family, there are a number of important Jewish families in Italy, and the woman I want to look at first tonight, and it's a woman I urge you to research a little bit, if you find her interesting, because she is coming to the fore, is Sarah 
קופיה סולם. איזה נפסל הקופיה? נפסל הקופיה סולם. established wealthy middle-class Jewish family in Venice. That's not the same as talking about an established wealthy middle-class Jewish family in Melbourne in the 21st century. It's not quite the same thing. As we know, Jews in Venice, and you only have to read The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare to know this, because it's reasonably accurate, is that the Jews in Venice nevertheless lived in a ghetto and they lived under restrictions anywhere in the orbit of the Holy Roman Empire was going to be in some way restrictive to Jews but they were able to function nevertheless on a high level and interact with many many of their non-Jewish neighbors and commercially they were successful as part of the Venetian influence throughout the whole of the Mediterranean and they took part in that whole Uh, advent and but that was a hundred years earlier uh, uh, yeah. now so Sarah like her sisters was educated middle-class Jewish families that could afford that kind of luxury would not only educate their sons who were expected probably to do one of two things either move into the family business or go and be some, become something like Not a job for a Jewish boy, but something like a rabbi. <laughs> but Sarah and her sisters were educated with a top Italian 17th century Renaissance education. Probably more even than your average non-Jewish Italian girl would have got. And that included languages and it included literature. It was a full humanities education. They would have had proper private tutors. They would have been a lot like their Christian neighbors, except that they were Jewish. And Sarah decided at a young age that she wasn't going to just have this education and then go and get married and end of the story. She was, in fact, going to be a poet. And she was a fairly talented poet. I say fairly, because let's not get ahead of ourselves, impressions are that she wasn't extraordinary at poetry. She wrote a few sonnets, but she did gain a reputation within the local scene as one of the literati. Yeah? And some of her poems were starting to be published in pamphlets and so on, and people would say, oh, that's a very nice poem, Sarah. We saw your poem in the Venice Jewish News, and uh, that was lovely. Uh, but her aspirations may have, I don't want to put Sarah down, but her aspirations may have been uh, taller than her talent, but she nevertheless could write a good poem. And eventually, around, she was born in, probably at the end of the 16th century, she was born in around 1590, And by the time she's about in her early 20s, maybe 2021, she's married. 
And she's married because, well, if you, if, that, that's not an option then. It's not an option. Uh, you, you marry for a whole lot of reasons and uh, there's no reason not to get married so she got married and she married a guy called a Jacob Sulam and she was fortunate in marrying Jacob because Jacob was a, a competent and successful businessman the Kopia's son-in-law Jacob Sulam some years older than Sarah but an established gentleman already and he was quite willing to support Sarah in her endeavours to write poetry and to become part of the social intellectual scene. This may seem strange that we're talking about the 17th century in Italy because it all sounds very modern and very normal. And that's what the bubble of the Venice or Italian Jewish communities were, whether we looked at them in Modena, in Ferrara. It was like we're just trying to be normal over here and we're trying to have interesting, successful lives. And she and Jacob, over the course of a few years, developed what basically became the first and most successful literary salon in Venice. So we do know quite a lot about the Jacob and Sarah because other intellectuals and artists and writers, poets, are visiting their home and having these kind of cosmopolitan soirees. The family was friends with someone I spoke about in the first talk. And that person, if you recall, I spoke about a very, very high-level Jewish-Italian intellectual called Leon Modena, Rabbi Leon Modena, who had written a number of important texts and had, in fact, uh, uh, written the, um, wrote, in fact, the rebuttal on Da Costa, when I talked about Uriel da Costa in Amsterdam. We'll come back to that in a second. But in 1618, Sarah read a play written by a monk called, I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, where on earth is he going with this? Why is this interesting? It's very interesting. A monk called Ansaldo Ceba. Now, Ansaldo Ceba had been a distinguished Italian diplomat some years before. By this time, Ansaldo Ceba is an older gentleman. He's probably in his, I'm not old, old, but he's probably in his 50s or 60s. Ansaldo Ceba, and she's in her like glittering mid to late 20s and in this salon with Jacob. And she's never met Ansaldo Ceba, but she wrote a play that he wrote on the book of Esther called, amazingly, Lester. Now, he had decided to retire from the diplomatic service some years earlier and had been spending the last few years in a monastery. The dude was a monk. But he wrote this book, Lester. Sarah got hold of this book and it, this play that was published and it totally blew her mind. For some reason, this play totally, totally spoke to her, transformed her completely. And she wrote to Anseldo Chiba, to wherever he was in his monastery, wherever that was. And she wrote to somewhere in the wastelands of Italy, and she wrote to him and she said, the book has changed my life. 
you have become my spiritual guide, my spiritual light. I sleep with your book under my pillow and I carry it around with me next to my bosom. Your book is everything. I mean, this letter that just extols the book, extols and saldul cheba. Now, imagine you're a monk and you write a play, right? And then some vivacious, attractive young woman writes you that letter, right? Well, Cheba couldn't contain himself. And over the course of the next few years, uh, he writes, uh, he and Sarah have this amazing correspondence back and forth over the course of which it becomes very, very highly charged in two basic ways. It becomes highly charged theologically and it becomes highly charged sexually. They never meet. They never meet. But at one point, Ansaldo wrote to her and said, I know you are beautiful because a friend of mine came to your house and delivered something, that present that I sent you, and has come back and told me what you look like. To which Sarah said, well, why didn't you ask? I'm sending a portrait. So she sends him a portrait and so on. It all builds up. She, of course, he's a monk and she's a married woman. But there's like between the lines, all this erotic energy is lying between the lines of their correspondence. So there's a sexual chemistry there, but there is in the literature. But there is also, and this is possibly even more to the point, there's a theological tension. Because he is trying throughout his letters to get her to convert to Christianity. He even says at one point, if you convert, we can be together. And she, of course, says, you know, ha, what do you think? How that going to work? You're a monk 30 years older than me and I'm married in Venice. And he goes, no, I mean, we can be together in heaven. Uh, he, even, he even points out the fact that the double P in her name means that they are, that's about being a couple. After which she actually dropped the second P from the copia. <laughs> This is, no, seriously, this was a long, long... Now, we know about all this through, obviously, many, many channels, but towards the end of his life, Ansaldo published the letters. But he, and this is, the, this is the tragedy of it, and why scholars are kind of really frantically working through this, is because he only published the letters that he wrote. And not, so we only have very, very few of the letters that she wrote, but it's not the only writings of hers. We have other writings. So that continued on for years and years and years. Now, while that was going on, and in fact, towards more towards the end of Ansaldo's life, Sarah was betrayed. She was betrayed by one of the kind of artists, poets in Italian society, a guy called uh, Bonasario Bonafacci, who came to the Salon and then wrote up a treatise where he claimed and published it, and apparently the laws of libel in those days were a little different from what they are now, but he basically wrote a, a treatise where he said 
that in discussions with Sarah Kopia Sulam, she had made it clear to him that she did not believe in the immortality of the soul. Now, if you're in Melbourne in the 21st century, <laughs> and you write a letter to the Australian Jewish News, or in fact not the Australian Jewish News, to the Australian, or to any public forum you like, and I say, you know, I was in a discussion with uh, Rabbi Groner, and it appears to me that he doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul. People would, would no, maybe not Rabbi Groner, that would actually, that would actually be a problem, but let's say, you know, you went to someone's someone's intellectual salon and you said that, you know, you said it about a university professor. Who cares? Why was that a problem? Why was that a problem for Sarah that Bonifacio had published this article? And why is that a problem for a Jewish woman living in Venice? Because, because it was assumed that that is one of the principles that Jews and Christians shared in common, the immortality of the soul, and therefore a public perception that she did not believe in that, amazingly, would, as you said, class her potentially as a heretic and bring her under the remit of the Inquisition. The Inquisition didn't bother itself with Jews, remember this unless one of two things, unless they were seen to be aiding and abetting new Christians to stay Jewish, or if they themselves were guilty of public statements of heresy. It was extremely dangerous for Sarah. And she wrote to Ansel, and she wrote, first of all, she wrote within three days, she knocked out this massive response. By the way, is a there's a whole sad aspect to this that I'm, it's a fascinating story, but there's a sad aspect to this that I'm not saying, is that it would appear that Jacob and Sarah uh, didn't have any children that survived. They, apparently she gave birth to a number of infants, but they didn't make it through infancy, or they didn't make it beyond a very young age, which obviously tragically happens a lot in the you know, pre-modern or early modern era. And it was actually while she was recovering from one of those episodes that she had read and sold Chippa's book. But she wrote, after the accusations against her, she wrote this very, very extensive manifesto that she published in defense of her belief in the immortality of the soul. And we have that, and we have a number of poetic inserts that went into that document. After which she called upon all of her intellectual friends to come to her defense. This was not a simple case of preserving her integrity or her honor. Her life could have depended on this. And she wrote to Ansaldo Cheba, and he didn't answer. And he didn't answer for seven months. And when the letter finally came, he barely made reference to it. And he still basically said, I think you should become a Christian. And she was so disappointed by that after years, years, years of all this correspondence that he wouldn't stand up to her aid, that she basically cut off 
the correspondence, and he actually died a couple of years after that. But none of the other intellectuals came to her defense until round about 1625, when a number of important female poets in Italy at the time supported her anonymously by publishing a long letter of defense of Saracopia Sulam, whom they recognized as a colleague and as a colleague and contemporary in the world of Italian letters of the time. So her name was highly, highly lauded, and she was eventually defended, and the Inquisition didn't take too much of an interest. Fascinating story. Toward, and over the next few years, things didn't go amazingly well for Sarah. Uh, she was, she got done in this terrible scam. Um, it's a, it's, it's an amazing thing when you talk about someone who's so interesting and has th th this contribution and this profile, and then suddenly there's this tacked on the end of her biography is this very, very bizarre set of circumstances, but she would hire private teachers, you know, as an adult. Yep, there is this thing called adult education. I don't know if you heard about it, but just, you know, and she, she couldn't go to a Chabad house on a Tuesday night, and here's these private teachers. And one of her private teachers... Uh, was uh, a poet, also a poet, called uh, Paluzzi. And he came and after a while, he brought some mates with him and uh, they decided to deceive uh, Sarah by writing her letters from some random Frenchman uh, who was enamoured with her and she obviously had a part of this person, her personality that was susceptible to this, and she believed them. And then they convinced her to buy expensive presents for him and to send them, and that they would make sure the presents got sent, but the presents ended up in Paluzzi's room. Eventually, uh, and then they were trying to convince her that spirits were taking them, and it got very messy, and eventually she took them to court, and she won the court case. So in the end, it had a good ending, but it was just kind of this weird episode when you look at Saracopia Sulam that it's tacked onto this. But the main thing she's known for is this very reflective and interesting correspondence that she has with Ansaldo Ceba. And she's the first woman I want to look at. If you're looking at the six or seven, seven most important Jewish women in the 17th century, she is definitely coming to the fore and we are accessing more and more of her poetry, uh, which is okay. Um, but it's more about what she represented as a social symbol in the development of Italian Jewry at the time. So what, did she, what was the core of her correspondence in terms of... What did she, what was it, she write? The core of her correspondence with Ansaldo? I'll give it to you in one word from what I've read of it. Yearning. There is a yearning, there is a restlessness to her writing. She is spiritually seeking something. It's not like she hasn't had a good Jewish education, but there's something missing for her. She's yearning for something. And he says, well, your answers are in Christianity, and she knows that's not true for her. He asks if he can permission to pray for her soul to convert to Christianity, and she says, you can, so long as I can pray for you to convert to Judaism. He didn't like that. It was like... <laughs> so... What was the book of... Was that based on the book of Esther? <coughs> it was based on the book of Esther. Now, amazingly... I need to move on to the other women. But amazingly, 
And, and, and this is something that other historians have not picked up on. They haven't, they haven't no, not, not in the literature I've read, they haven't made the connect, or maybe they have, and I haven't seen it. But in this, um, she, reads, she reads Chiba's play in 1618. We know that because we know when she writes about it. In 1619, this is an important fact actually, in 1619, the following year, completely unrelated, Leon Modena, the great scholar and a family friend, wrote a play by exactly the same title about the same thing, about the Book of Esther, a play based on the Book of Esther, and dedicated it to Sarakopiosula. And that those two facts, the same the same title of a similar play, one that she read by this monk, and one written by her scholarly family friend and dedicated to her, is a very strange thing. And the scholars haven't really seemed to work out whether there's a connection between those two ideas. Maybe it sounds a bit like she wrote excitedly to Leon Modena. And he says, ah, don't read what the monk wrote. I'll write you a play based on this and, you know, read this. Maybe, maybe. All right. Next woman I want to talk about is very different. And I'm, I have to just move from woman to woman. Although we're not going to get through it. And I, I, I can only spend about 10 minutes on each one. And I already spent like 25 minutes on her. But she is extremely interesting. You remember that I spoke about the, I have to bring myself out of Italy now, it's just that it actually takes a mental movement to put myself in another frame. You remember that uh, we spoke in the, I spoke in the first talk about the uh, Maharal of Prague. Yeah? Uh, in fact, I didn't, I didn't really speak about him. I, sp <laughs> I spoke in this, talk, in this series, I spoke about him in the 16th century because he's more a figure of the 16th, but his life extends into the 17th. And we spoke a little bit about his student, David Gans, and we spoke about uh, other issues to do with the Maharal of Prague. Yeah? Now, the Maharal of Prague had children, and one of his daughters had a daughter. And she is extremely interesting, because you're thinking, oh, well, okay, so women can become poets in Italy. All right, fine. But this woman's name... is Eva Bachrach. And Eva Bachrach is born in Prague, where her grandfather had been the most famous rabbi of Prague. And interestingly enough, and this is interesting because now we're actually in Bohemia, so we're in a different part of Europe, we're in a different part of the Jewish world, where girls are not always given the kinds of education that are afforded to boys, but she was given that kind of education for whatever reason. And she then married and moved to Worms. Now Worms, the community of Worms, which is an extremely interesting community, and it's near what big city? Those of you who know Germany, that we've discussed. Very good. It's near Frankfurt. 
So it's more like in the southwest of Germany. Yeah? We're gonna, we have to be a little bit familiar with Germany tonight. Uh, but she moves to Worms. And what we have on record, not, I mean, from the Memorbuch of the community of Worms, which we still have, and documents that attest to all of this, is that Eva Bachrach, the granddaughter of the Maharal, became one of the most respected scholars in Worms and in the German Jewish community at, of the 17th century. So much so that she was in fact even consulted by rabbis and by rabbinic scholars on the texts that they were studying to ask her what she thought of them. We don't know a huge amount about her life, but we do know that she attained the highest levels of scholarship. Not given a rabbinic status, but a status independent of any rabbinic, applied rabbinics, but as a textual scholar. This is kind of remarkable. Eva Bachrach is one of the women that, once again, contemporary researchers and contemporary scholars are trying to unravel her life and what was going on. We also know about her through a very famous work written by her grandson called Yair Bachrach. And he wrote a book, a very famous halachic work. When I say famous, I'm not expecting people in this room to be overly familiar with famous halachic works of the late 17th century. But there is a text, there is a book called Chavot Yair that was written, named, dedicated to, and named after Eva Bachrach, who of course was Chava Bachrach. And Chavot Yair is a whole commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, and Yair Bachrach was regarded as one of the great scholars of the 17th century, and he said that I probably wouldn't be what I am if it wasn't for my grandmother, who was one of the great scholars of Worms. Yair Bachrach, by the way, was the rabbi in Worms in 1689, when the community of Worms was destroyed. It wasn't destroyed in a pogrom. It was destroyed by the French army who invaded Worms in 1689. And when they saw, remember how I spoke about the Fettmilch uprising in Frankfurt so following that, community of Frankfurt and the communities around Frankfurt had on the front of the ghetto the symbol of the Holy Roman Emperor saying it was under his protection. Well, the French were at war with the Holy Roman Empire. So when they came in and they saw that symbol, that symbol they just went spectacular and they destroyed the ghetto. And they destroyed the whole Jewish community of Worms, which later got reconstructed and so on. But he was the rabbi at that time, but he was the grandson of Eva Bachrach. That's the second woman I want to talk about, and it opens already a window, a window into kind of revising this perception that we have that women of the 17th century were not given the same kinds of opportunities in education. Overall, and certainly in Northern and Eastern Europe, they probably weren't. But in little pockets, when women were given that opportunity, they rose to the highest ranks and the highest levels. But the next woman, 
that I want to talk about takes that to an extreme level. This is the other woman that is not as famous as perhaps she will be, and she's becoming more famous now. If you Googled her 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have found much, but now you'll find more. And in fact, those interested in women's studies and in the role of women are seeing this particular person more and more as an icon. Exactly the way that Donna Grazia came into consciousness over the last 30, 40 years as people kind of rediscovered her, people are now rediscovering the woman I'm about to talk about. So stay awake for this one because this is very, very important. And when it comes up in conversation, you'll go, oh, but, but I know that. And you'll be able to provide some interesting information because this is someone that I have found fascinating for a long time and so have a lot of people. And her name, some of you may remember, I did speak about her in the course on women that I gave a couple of years ago, but this woman's name is Osnat Barzani. Who's familiar with Osnat Barzani? Ah, but you will be. But you will be. Osnat Barzani is living not in Europe. She's living over here in southern Iraq, in Kurdistan. And she is, in fact, born and grows up in the town of Mosul, which is familiar to us because the last 20 years we've seen wars fought there beyond 20 years even. Her father, who we're not going into right now, who was uh, Rabbi Shmuel Netanel Halevi of Mosul, Barzani, was a unique individual in, his, in the 16th century in that he basically reconstructed single-handedly the whole of Kurdish Kurdic Jewry. I mean, there had been Jews living throughout Kurdic areas in Iraq for a long time, but they had become fairly estranged from Jewish spirituality. He was like this major, major reconstructionist figure. And he realized, this is Osnat's father, he re in the 16th century, he realized that the only way that you can really reconstruct a continuum in a Jewish community, a wide and vast Jewish community like that, it's education. So even before we get to women, we're dealing with the fact that people, whether they're men or women, need to be educated. In order to do that, you need to open up academies of Torah. So he opens a yeshiva in Mosul, and he runs it, and dozens and then hundreds of young boys come to study and then he's able to train them as spiritual leaders, as communal leaders, as rabbis. I mean, we see it in our own time. If you don't have schools, you're not resurrecting a community. So he sets up what is effectively a Jewish school, a yeshiva. He sits and he trains an entire two, two or three generations of them. Now, he did not have any sons. So, it's a bit like the Rashi story. But Osnat, 
Osnat is like Rashi's daughters on crack. What happens is he not only teaches his daughter everything, but he forbids her from doing anything else. She's not allowed to do any housework. She's not allowed to learn how to cook. She's not allowed to clean. Her job, and he says, and she writes about this in a famous letter she writes when she will get to the letters and the poetry, but she says, I was treated by my father as a princess. I did no work. I never even went in the kitchen. Now, other girls, even from middle-class educated families, would have been taught traditional skills that were taught to women, whether it was sewing, whether it was a shtickle cooking, whether it was whatever you're doing to make a house, to be a balabusta. She was never, ever taught those things. Her job was to sit and study until eventually she became so learned that she started helping out in the yeshiva, teaching the young men who were learning to become rabbis. She married. She married a rabbi called Rabbi Jacob Mizrahi. And before she married him, her father said to her prospective husband, you are only allowed to marry my daughter on the condition that she never does anything except study and teach. She's not allowed to cook. She's not allowed to clean. She's not allowed to do anything other than study and cook. And I imagine, you know, some level of husband-wife relations would have gone on there. But nevertheless, that was her thing she had to do. And he accepted that. Now, when her father passed away, when Rabbi Shmuel passed away, her husband, Rabbi Jacob Mizrahi, a big scholar in his own right, became the head of the yeshiva. But he was a very, very cloistered scholarly type. He spent most of his time in his own study. And the teaching of the students started to get a little neglected, and so Osnat took it on. And for many years, while her husband was still alive, she was the main teacher in the yeshiva. And when he died, she became the Rosh Yeshiva. She became the head of the yeshiva officially. She is the only woman prior to the 21st century who is a female Rosh Hashiva. Many people, many people regard her as the first ever female rabbi. Some say that she's not called, a, she's not the first rabbi because she didn't take the title rabbi. She took the title Tanait. Tanait. And that the first rabbi, female rabbis weren't until the reform movement in the, 20, in the 20th century and so on. But at the end of the day, she was probably the greatest scholar in Judaism as a woman since the times of the Mishnah and certainly even in the times of the Mishnah when we talk about people like Bruria they weren't necessarily made the heads of academies she was in charge of the whole spiritual direction of the entire Jewish community of Kurdistan
Now, she was also, and here's the thing, you think, okay, so she became a Talmudic scholar. But she also acquired a serious reputation, and you don't really get anywhere in the 17th century unless you have a bit of this. She acquired a serious reputation as a Kabbalist. However, we're not talking about the speculative, theological, theocosmological Kabbalah that we've spoken about till now, or even the antinomian Kabbalah we've spoken about till now. She had a wide reputation as a practical Kabbalist. As a practical Kabbalist. And this comes through in a number of different documents about her, things written about her from the time that we still have in her own letters. Now, there was a couple of legends about her. We don't know the veracity of this, but just to give you an idea of how she was perceived as a spiritual holy woman with powers, as well as a great scholar, is that she, instead of her, that she developed, and I've never ever seen this anywhere else really, is that she developed what can only be described as a Kabbalistic martial arts. That is, there is a legend that she was a particular name that she was able to utter and she stopped a would-be rapist who froze in his tracks after she offered this name. She also allegedly controlled, she had two children and allegedly controlled her own conception, birth control, using Kabbalistic names. Now, whether or not that's true is separate from the fact that that's the perception around her. One story, however, that is attested to in a number of different places happened in some form, and it's the famous story about Osnat Barzani called the Flock of Angels story. And if you get into Osnat Barzani, you will see that this is probably the most famous legend about her. And that is that, is anyone familiar with the idea that there is a special day for women in the Jewish calendar? Anyone know what that is? Uh, traditionally, over the years, it has become known as a day where women, it's kind of like become a bit of a women's festival. 15th of Av. No, the 15th of Av is the festival of love. It's a different thing. It's like a Jewish Valentine's Day. No, the, what I'm referring to, and some of you will nod when I say this, is Rosh Chodesh. Oh, yeah. Yep, the new moon. The new moon is regarded as, I mean, it happens several times. It's not just one day a year. It happens every new moon. It's regarded as a woman's festival. And this became a big thing in Kurdistan. So all the congregation, not just the women, all the congregation would come out and they would bless the new moon and bless the women and the women would dance and there would be a whole women's festival there. Yep. And Osnat got right into that, and in fact, um, she, uh, she was a big supporter of the idea that communities should celebrate the new moon and celebrate the women. Now, without going into the complex history of it, because there is a complex history, but that uh, Kurdistan came under the control of the Safavid dynasty, and there were, of Iran, and there were of Persia, and there were a number of uh, anti-Semitic decrees and persecutions, things weren't going so well for the Jewish community. There, there, wasn't, there weren't massacres per se, but there were, um, there were restrictions and, and, and always the potential of massacres. And so people started uh, being a little bit more low profile. And there was uh, one particular town where 
they had decided that they were going to not really do this big Rosh Chodesh festival in the streets because they didn't want to antagonize the local authorities and the, and the Gentile neighbors. So Osnat's father, so she writes, came to her in a dream and said, I want you to go to that particular town and I want you to get the people to celebrate Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, properly. So she goes there and they're all in the synagogue prepared to do it because they said, we're not going to do it outdoors. And she goes, no, we're going to do it outdoors and we're going to do it in the street and it's going to be like normal. And my father told me to come in a dream and tell you that and I'm here. Trust me, it's going to be okay. So they all go out in the street and they all start singing and dancing the big women's festival. And suddenly they look around and the synagogue is on fire. Flames are leaping from the roof of the synagogue. And she utters some kind of divine name, some incantation. And a flock of angels descended and beat out the fire with their wings and then shot up. And when it shot up, it was like this massive flock of doves just shot up. So whether or not people thought they saw angels, but in fact, it was a massive flock of doves that were freaking out because of the fire or whatever. In some form, they put the fire out. This was regarded as an enormous miracle, which it kind of was, and enhanced Osnat's reputation even greater. Now, Osnat, although she was the head of the yeshiva, things were difficult economically, but she didn't travel. She did not believe it was modest for a woman and a woman of her stature to go schlepping around everywhere to Schnorra funds. Yep, I mean, a yeshiva needs funds. Unlike other women that I'll talk about in a few moments who did travel a lot, she, instead of traveling, whereas someone else, a man, might have traveled to collect funds on behalf of their institution, she wrote letters. So we have a lot of her letters that were written to people, and her letters show phenomenal erudition phenomenal erudition. We're not talking about, you know, a woman with a good education. We're talking about a scholar, a rabbinic scholar of the absolute top rank, fully fluent in Talmud, Midrash, Kabbalah, biblical literature, the entire thing. So we have her letters and in those letters also are poems. So she also tried a hand at being a poet. I don't know, a bit like Sarah, whether she was an amazing poet, but she was a poet she was a practical Kabbalist, she was a fundraiser, but above all, she was the spiritual and intellectual giant of the Jewish community of Kurdistan in the 17th century. By the time her husband died and she became the Rosh Hashiva, she had already spent decades as the teacher, the main teacher of all of these boys that were coming through the Yeshiva to become amazing. rabbis. Yeah, she is amazing. She's an astonishing, and only now we're realizing, my gosh, look at this woman in Kurdistan, a giant. Now, I'm now going to talk for five minutes about something that's very obscure and very difficult. And so I don't have all the answers on this, but I just want to talk about it because it is such a deep and difficult subject that it wouldn't be right if I didn't. And I'm jumping now to an entirely different part of the world. And I have spoken in the past 
I have spoken in the past how difficult life was for Jewish communities and not even communities, for Jewish individuals, for Jews who found themselves under the influence or the sway of the Inquisition. And we know that the Inquisition wasn't just going on in Spain or Portugal. Because once Spain and Portugal captured the New World, it was going on there as well. And we looked at that. We actually looked at the beginnings of the Jewish communities in North America as having been really started by refugees coming from when from Brazil when it went back to Portugal and so on, yeah? And we know a lot about this because, as I've said in previous talks, the Inquisition kept meticulous records and they kept records of all their interrogations and we have the interrogation records of hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people. And the predominant number of these people are women. Why? Because, as I've said, and I'll just briefly return to this point, it's so important, is that in Jewish life, or in, certainly in the early modern period and beforehand, yeah, there are two fundamental domains. There's the public domain, and then there's the private domain of the home. The public sphere was more or less the province of men. And the private sphere, the home, was the province of women. If you completely eliminate one of those spheres, i.e. the public sphere, you can no longer publicly be Jewish, then everything devolves about what's happening in the home. And so it was Jewish women that were keeping Judaism and Jewish communities such as they were crypto-Jewish communities alive, whether that was happening in Spain and Portugal in the 16th century or whether it was happening in the Americas in the 17th century. But during the 17th century, particularly after Portugal regained its independence from Spain in 1640, which is a whole other historical harabujna I'm not going into right now, but throughout the 17th century, the Inquisition went seriously to town in New Spain, or what we now call Mexico. And we looked even, <coughs> in the first talk, I talked about the, uh, the famous auto de fe of 1649 of Thomas Trevino uh, Sobramonte, and who was the leader of the crypto community. But that's kind of unusual that, we, uh, that I mentioned a man because many, many of the testimonies and interrogations that can be read are of Jewish women and they make you just want to weep. You could be arrested and tortured and strangled or burnt to death simply by virtue of your slaves for slaves read servant but slave reporting that they saw you take a bath on Friday afternoon. In some way, Jews remained Jewish. They kept the law of Moses. But here's the difficult part, is that by the time we are a century, a century and a half beyond the imposition of the Inquisition in Spanish and Portuguese territories throughout the world, and especially when we're no longer in Europe, 
in contact with people that might know a thing or two, by the time we're looking at the middle of the 17th century in Mexico, it's really weird. It's really weird. People who are crypto-Jews are keeping this kind of weird syncretic version of Judaism. But nevertheless, they regard themselves as fully Jewish and are keeping Shabbat as much as they can, are keeping kosher as much as they can. Now, there had developed inside, and I can't go into this too much, but there had developed inside crypto Mexican crypto jewelry in Mexico a kind of a, a weird quasi-messianism and that was a belief that went on for several decades documented people have written books on it you can look into it but a weird belief that the Messiah was going to be born in Mexico to a you can understand why these beliefs might have arisen just to give people hope was going to be born in Mexico to a crypto-Jewish woman. And after a while, all people's hopes were pinned on an extraordinary woman called Donna Juana Enriquez. Now, when I say Donna Juana Enriquez, she was the main kind of focal point of this messianic movement but it wasn't her alone there was a whole extended family about around Juana Enriquez her sisters her mothers her granddaughters when you read the literature it's sometimes difficult to work out which generation exactly they're talking about and but it was all about the women so the women would come together so when Dona Juana Enriquez was finally pregnant they had ceremonies where all the women would circle around her and pray for the birth of the Messiah. And they would dress her in white and uh, light candles and do these incredible ceremonies. All in the 1640s and 1650s. So when you think about what was going on in Europe, yep, what was going on in Europe? So this is this come kind of strange thing was going on in uh, Mexico, but everyone got caught up in it. Now, one of the things that Jewish crypto women in Mexico could do, I'm going to have to speak quickly, was that they could get away with without too much suspicion. When I say too much, there nevertheless was was fasting. Because fasting is also something that's seen as a very pious Christian thing to do. Therefore, they could fast. And sometimes, in the absence of being able to do anything else, they would fast. Yep. And one of the, and so there was this big deal about fasting. They always kept Yom Kippur, of course, was the, was the, Dio Grande, was, that was the big day. But then they also kept the fast of Esther. Fast of Esther, they kept three days like it says in the Bible, like Esther fasted three days, we only keep one day fast of Esther, they kept three days. Listen to this syncretism. They didn't have any connection with the rest of the Jewish world. So listen to this. Yom Kippur, when was Yom Kippur? 10th of September. When was Pesach? 
three days before Easter. You understand? The whole thing had to get translated into some kind of syncretic mode that they could understand. And also, and I can't go into this too much now, it's so fascinating, is the role played in all of this. Oh, by the way. By the way, the, uh, Donna Juana Enriquez had a girl. So, but when her sister became pregnant, there was again the whole big, uh, Rafaela became pregnant, the whole big thing, and then she had a boy, the boy didn't turn out to be the Messiah, but many, many, many of these people ended up dying at the hands of the Inquisition and dozens of them were killed in the great big grand auto de fe that was held in 1649. But what I was about to say was that one of the amazing things in this entire saga is the role played by chocolate. Chocolate. As you know, chocolate comes from the New World, the cacao bean, it comes from the New World, and it very quickly became the drink of choice for everyone. The Jewish women came up with all sorts of excuses not to drink it. Uh, I'm allergic to, oh, I didn't use the word allergic, it makes me not well, da da da, I don't like it, it brings me spots. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Huh? Sorry? No, nothing to do with kashrut. Huh? No, nothing to do with kashrut. It's so that they would not come under suspicion when they didn't drink chocolate on days that they wanted to fast. That might seem crazy to you, but their entire world was wrapped up in not being caught by the Inquisition and everybody was drinking chocolate. If your servant brings you a cup of chocolate to drink, because it was, it was a drink form then, and you say, I'm not drinking it today, and because it happened to be Yom Kippur, it happened to be a fast day, you would immediately come under suspicion. Yeah? And so think about that in terms of women, what they sacrificed. They gave up chocolate <laughs> for their Judaism. Now, very quickly, I'm moving on. The next woman I want to talk about is Sarah, who I spoke briefly, not briefly, I spoke about last week. But I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that we didn't really get into grips with last week. Sarah, of course, as I mentioned, was Shabtai Tzvi's third wife. Yeah? Her parents were killed in the Khmelnytsky pogroms. What we understand by her own legend was she grew up in a convent but we know that at some point as a teenager she got escape velocity from that whole scene and made her way to a number of established cities we know she was in Amsterdam we know she was in Mantua in Italy and we know she was in Livorno and by the time she gets to Livorno she already has a reputation effectively as a harlot yep we know she's attractive, we know she is quite vivacious, and we know also from a fairly reliable accounts that she's sexually promiscuous. From Livorno, as we looked at last week, she was sponsored to come to Cairo to meet Shabtai Tzvi because this prostitute, Jewish prostitute in Livorno was saying, I'm having visions that I'm supposed to marry the Messiah. And these wealthy dudes going between Livorno and Cairo going, oh, that's interesting, because the Messiah is living in Cairo. So they bring her here and she marries 
him. Shidduch of the century. Now, one of the things I didn't go into last week, which is fascinating, is Shabtai Tzvi's motivations in marrying Sarah. Anyone know what that really, really excited him about that? Remember? Remember? With Shabtai? His followers might be doing all sorts of interesting, bizarre stuff, but for him, it's not so sexual. His first two marriages didn't even get consummated. There's a very, very strong chance that by this stage, even in his early 40s, he's still a virgin. What excited him about marrying this woman of ill repute? Apart from the whole sin thing, there is a precedent. There is a precedent. What's the precedent? Who married a prostitute? Oh, interesting, 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 interesting. That interesting. That's not even discussed in the literature, but that's interesting. But who absolutely married a prostitute? Who married, who was told by God, find the biggest wanton woman you can find and marry her? A woman so promiscuous that even her name is a rude joke. The prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea. Have a look at the first chapter of Hosea. It's the beginning of his prophecy, of his prophetic mission. He's told by God, go and marry a total and absolute whatever. And he does it. So that excited Shabtai's feet. Now, what's interesting, however, is that now we understand from what Sarah was saying and from what others were writing, is that he still didn't consummate that marriage until his conversion to Islam. After his conversion to Islam, he consummated the marriage. And she very soon became pregnant. And she had a son. Imagine being Shabtai Tzvi's son. His name, and probably one of the strangest names in the whole of Jewish history, Shabtai Tzvi's son's name, Yishmael Mordechai. <laughs> ben Shabtai Tzvi. And then she got pregnant again. And Shabtai divorced her. And then she gave birth to a daughter. After which he remarried her. Now, all of that's weird enough, but the interesting thing about Sarah is that we now understand that her role was not merely reactive within the Sabbatean movement, as earlier scholars might have thought, but probably far more proactive in terms of Shabtai's obsession, as I spoke about last week, with promoting the rights of women, with liberating women, with seeing the rise of the status of women as essential to the whole of the messianic idea. So he called women to the Torah and he had women perform rituals that had normally been only done by men and he was talking a lot in very, very proto-modern language about women having equal rights in the messianic age and that the messianic age is now here because, hello, I'm the Messiah, therefore women have equal rights. And we believe now that Sarah might have actually been pushing this Whereas Nathan of Gaza might have been pushing a different theological line about antinomianism and salvation through sin and also the justification of the sparks in Islam and all the rest of it, Sarah's contribution is extremely interesting. Now, 
two more women to go very quickly. I'm sorry that I've run out of time and I'm not balanced because these women really, I, I'm not, I wasn't expecting that um, I would be speaking uh, about each of them for as long as I am, but they are all fascinating in different ways. And these are the women that we are the most famous. But this woman is the most famous Jewish woman of the 17th century. This is the woman that when I say who this is, you're going to go, oh, yes, of course, I have heard of her. Put your hand up if you know who's the most famous Jew. Don't call out. Just put your hand up. Who's the most famous Jewish woman of the 17th century that you've all heard of? Gluckel of Hamlin is far and away. If you ask people, name one woman from the 17th century, it's going to be Gluckel of Hamlin. Why? Why, Adele? Why do we know about Gluckel of Hamlin? We know about... Why? She wrote a book. Not just a book. She, look, imagine, imagine if you could get in a time machine and go back to the 17th century and speak to a woman and ask her, what is your life like? The closest thing we have to that is the huge, full-on, decades-long, detailed diary of a Jewish woman living in the 17th century. And that is Gluckel of Hamlin. Now, Gluckel is interesting in her own right. Not uber-remarkable, but interesting, but she's famous and interesting because her diary completely opens up the window. So I can't go, it's so massive, I can't go into all the details of her diary, but I just want to give a very, very brief sketch of who she was. Interestingly enough, when she was three years old, her father was one of the very, very respected citizens, Jewish citizens of the community of Hamburg, and they were expelled. She was born in around 1646, and in 1649, once again, 1648, 1649, everything seems to happen around there, the, the Jews, were, her family, along with a whole lot of other Jews, were expelled from Hamburg and had to go and live in Altona. But not all Jews, just who? This will tell you something else about the 17th century that's worth knowing. Every single facet of Gluckel tells you something about the 17th century. What Jews? The Ashkenazi. The Sephardim had been the first... Can you imagine that? The Jews of Hamburg, the Jewish community of Hamburg was first settled by Sephardim. In 1649, I was actually in control of Denmark at the time, but the Jew, Ashkenazic Jews had to bog off out of Hamburg and they went to the neighbouring town of Altona. A few years later, the Ashkenazim came back and her father, her family, was one of the first to come back into, maybe even the first, to come back, be allowed to come back into Hamburg. Anyway, eventually, da -da -da, she ends up marrying a guy called Chaim of Hamlin. And Chaim of Hamlin is our dude. And he is a very commercially, commercially successful trader. He deals in precious metals and stones and, uh, and so on. Does very well. The family prospers. And they have a lot of children. Gluckel's not writing a diary at this point. She only starts writing a diary after her husband Chaim dies. By the way, she was betrothed at 12 and married at 14. That's the whole, now we can go, ah, oh, right? Jailsville today, but then, quite acceptable. Um, but when he died in the uh, 1680s, late 1680s, she started keeping this diary as a form of therapy, and she writes it. It was a comfort therapy, which has a very interesting angle to it as well, and I'll get to it in a second. So it's a comfort therapy, 
But she starts by sitting down and writing the story of her life so far. And then, you know, and it's interesting is that when Chaim died, her husband died, she took over the business. And we know that she traveled all over the place. Every city you can imagine. Amsterdam, Paris, Frankfurt, Hamburg, Prague. She was everywhere doing business. And she was extremely good. Her husband had left quite a serious amount of debt in his business when she took it over. She managed to pay off completely all of the debts within the first 12 months of taking over the business. So whatever we say about Glukol, she was very organized and very efficient and very talented at commerce. And she knew the business. Even before Chaim died, she was writing up contracts and stuff. So she, obviously highly intelligent, could read. And there was no question. This picture that we have, that it was all about men, is not accurate. No one was questioning the fact that when Chaim died, Gluckel would take over the entire business. And she still had children who were not yet married and so on. And then she remarried. After great hesitation, she remarried a wealthy businessman. And then he went mechula. He went bankrupt. And so she lost, he lost not only his own fortune, but also hers. And so her economic end was not great. Despite being super cautious and nervous about the whole thing, she ended up having to live with her children, her married children. I can't go into Gluckel too much because it's just too big, but I urge you to look into Gluckel, and also because we're nearly out of time, I urge you to look into Gluckel of Hamelin. She is the most famous Jewish woman of the 17th century because we just know every single slice of her life. And the last woman I'm just going to quickly talk about, kind of like flowing from there, is uh, Esther, not a little more obscure, but nevertheless very interesting, Esther Liebman. Now, Esther Liebman, who started life as Esther Schulhoff, and then she married a guy called Israel Aaron, and then when he died, she married a guy called Jost Liebman. And Jost Liebman, this was his second marriage, and Jost Liebman's first wife had been the niece of Gluckel of Hamelin. And Jost himself had learnt the trade of precious metals and jewels from Chaim of Hamelin. But Esther and Jost went to live and were among the first Jews to gain a tolerance patent, meaning a permission of residence in a place called Berlin, which was now the capital of this entity called Prussia. And the king of, was, was ruled by Frederick I of Prussia. And Frederick I and his court liked jewels. And therefore, Jost and Esther Liebman became very successful. There was almost like an endless hunger at the court of Frederick I for the jewels that they could offer. They were selling jewellery to the court of Frederick I. They became very prosperous. So there's this whole interconnection. However established or successful you could become, things were precarious. Because those of you who know a little bit about the history of Prussia will know that Frederick I died. And you will also know that he was succeeded by Frederick Wilhelm. And Frederick Wilhelm I was a very, very different kind of king. He is notoriously known in history as the soldier king. And he was extremely frugal and miserly in his expenses. Yep. And so you can imagine what they did 
to the jewellery trade. By which time, however, of course, the way things worked for Jews in this period is if you dealt with kings, if you became close to kings, and we see this again and again, we see it in the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, if you become close to kings, you have to be very, very careful. And one way in which you become careful is that you don't send an invoice to a king. You don't say, oh, I supplied you last month with this much gold and this many sapphires and this many rubies and this many diamonds and here's the billing and I'm expecting payment in 45 days. No. You wait until the king pays you and you have to realise that the king owing you money is itself an asset. Sometimes it's an asset that can be flipped the wrong way, but for the most part, the king will keep you on also because he wants to be able to keep, and he knows you'll stick around until you get paid. But when Frederick died and Frederick Wilhelm came to the throne, he basically <laughs> solved all the debt that had been built up to the Liebmans by, oh, sorry, I mentioned one crucial fact is that Joss died and Esther had taken over the whole enterprise by herself. That's once again a reflection also of what happened with Gluckel. But Gluckel was dealing basically with a family business. She was dealing as effectively a court supplier of jewellery. So the way Frederick Wilhelm solved it was he threw Esther in jail and uh, allowed her out. And because she had built up so much debt from the crown owing her, he fined her. You understand? But that tells you. That tells you that there is a rule of law, but not really for Jews. We're still in the 17th century, boys and girls. We are not yet in emancipation. We're not yet one law for all citizens. That's not going to happen until late in the 18th at the earliest. And maybe it's happening in North America, but not in Prussia of the late 17th, early 18th century. Yep. And so in the end, once again, we see Esther go into economic decline because of circumstances beyond her control. These seven women I've talked about tonight are all extremely different. But they are, and they're not game-changing, they are reacting and they are reflecting what is going on in the 17th century. Next week, I will be filling in the amazing gaps I have left because we still have to talk about some very big issues that we haven't covered and we will now be well qualified to discuss them. Primarily, of course, and those of you who are sitting there going, I can't believe he hasn't spoken about this yet, will be knowing that I'm going to, of course, be talking about the massive impact of the Dutch-English axis that happens in the 17th century and its effect on Jews and how that really is going to go on and change the world in a number of ways. Uh, but uh, tonight I wanted to focus on these incredible women and I hope I've opened the door for some of you uh, to do further research on that. So thank you for listening. Now, um, I just want to uh, tell you that these... Uh... Oh, 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 I knew... When I was talking about Eva Bachrach, I knew there was something that I didn't say. When her husband died, she was offered a marriage and she, was, she always wanted to go to the Holy Land. And she was offered to marry the Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz, the Shalah, who I spoke about. But she declined. 
She declined to marry the Shalah. And remember, he actually went to live in Israel. Later in life, Eva Bachrach did also go from uh, Verbs to Israel, but she died on the way. Um, so that's, that's interesting. I think we've covered most of what I spoke about. Oh, as you know, sorry, this won't take more than a second, but I'm begging your indulgence. And that is that Gluckel of Hamelin, and this is something I really, really wanted to talk about for two seconds. Those of you who look into Gluckel of Hamelin, I know that most of you are only pretending not to have heard of her, but when you look into Gluckel of, when, when you look into Gluckel of Hamelin, you will see a portrait of a 17th century Jewish woman. And you'll go, oh, that's Gluckel of Hamelin. That's her picture. And that's not her. It's the dress, but it's not her. It is, in fact, her great-granddaughter. And her great-granddaughter was one of the most, ah, oh, very good, one of the most famous women of the 20th century, Bertha Pappenheim, otherwise known as Anna O. And what was Freud telling Anna O to do? Keep a diary. That's the whole of the thing about the therapy. So this idea... And she famously decided to dress up as her great-grandmother because she discovered Gluckel of Hamelin and get photographed as her. But this idea as diary, as therapy, is an idea that went right through two centuries uh, in order to uh, come to full fruition. It's a fascinating connection between those two women. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.